Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Depending on when you were born, the name Shakur might bring different things to mind. If you're a 90s kid, you think Tupac. At one point, one of the most famous rappers alive and widely claimed by the Bay Area rap scene. If you were alive in the 60s and 70s, the name might recall the rise of Afrocentric thinking, the Panthers and Asada Shakur and the Black Liberation Army. A new book, American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created, traces the connections between the family and their relationship with the different factions of the black liberation movement. This morning, we talk with the book's author, Santi Elijah Holly, about the legacy of this complex family and the bravery, violence, and tragedy that surrounded it for decades. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Earlier this month, the Oakland City Council unanimously voted to rename a section of MacArthur Avenue Tupac Shakur Way. As a reminder, the resolution reads, of the rap icon's contributions as an awakening tool towards changes in society. Author Santi Elijah Hawley's new book, American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created, explores the complex legacy of Tupac's family the Shakurs, whose story spans the transition from the civil rights era to the sprawling diversity of efforts of the 1970s black freedom movements in Afrocentric thought, alternative health care, and in the underground. Welcome to the show, Santi. Thank you for this book. Thank you so much for having me. So we need to kind of start at the beginning of this family story, I think, the sort of opposite end of, of Tupac. And that's with Malcolm X and one of his followers who adopted the last name first, Saladin Shakur. Can you tell us a little bit about this man? Yeah, he was uh, an associate in Malcolm X. His, uh, his, his birth name uh, was uh, James Costin, James Costin Sr. And uh, late in life, he, after he um, met with Malcolm X and, and became affiliated with him and, and worked with him, and then after Malcolm X was assassinated, uh, he decided to carry on the work. He, uh, he became a Muslim. He changed his name to Saladin Shakur. He, um, the name Shakur had never really existed in the family before he before he adopted it for himself it, 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 it tr- translates roughly from arabic as thankful or to be thankful mm. and um by taking that name he was saying he was he was shedding his his birth name or or he would say his slave name mm-hmm. uh and taking on this new identity and with the new name and the new identity he was sort of Aligning himself with Malcolm's uh, message and his movement and his mission, uh, and then his his family, his sons, his two uh, oldest sons, also would then 
take on that name and that mission for themselves. I mean, did you yourself encounter Malcolm X kind of early? And did you know of his eventual kind of connection through Saladin Shakur to Tupac? No, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I did not know that Saladin... I, 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 did, I didn't even really know of Saladin mm-hmm. until really uh, beginning work on this book. And But it makes so much sense, the connection, obviously, from, from Malcolm X and his followers. You know, this, this was just a point of time where people were sort of becoming disillusioned with the, the gradual incrementalism uh, of the civil rights movement and looking for more militant, more direct uh, methods, you know, of, of, of self-determination, of self-defense. And so Malcolm X inspired a lot of younger people. And Saladin was older, but he, by virtue of being an associate in Malcolm X, was himself sort of a mentor, mm. father figure to a younger generation who were disillusioned with civil rights and 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 nonviolence, and they wanted something more more immediate and more gratifying, and and you know, and and, the, and that resulted in a lot of different different organizations, different groups um, who all mm. felt like they were carrying on Malcolm X's legacy. Yeah. I mean, in this book, Saladin also seems to represent kind of the emergence of a new Afro consciousness, as well as the connection to the literal anti-colonial struggles in Africa itself, many of which were these, you know, armed and and protracted battles. Can you talk a little bit about um, the way that Saladin actually like related to uh, different African countries? He actually, uh, you know, in, in addition to being a, a devout Muslim uh, and a father and uh, a husband, he was also a, a businessman, uh, entrepreneur. He he would travel to different places in Africa, different countries in Africa, um, and carry back African clothing because there was a sort of growing Afrocentrism uh, happening happening in New York, which is where the Shakurs were were based. It was in New York City, and there was a lot of uh, looking towards you know the mother continent, looking towards mm-hmm. this history, and so they they wanted their clothes and their names to reflect this history of of Africa, and they had, took a lot of pride in in Africa. And so Saladin saw a good business opportunity of of traveling to Africa, bringing back clothing, dashikis, you know, kente cloth, uh, and selling it uh, to young you know Afrocentric minded uh, youths uh, in New York. Uh, so it was sort of a, a, you know, he, that was his, his, mm-hmm. his helping, you know, raise a consciousness, a sort of Afrocentric consciousness to uh, a new generation. Yeah. And there really is a sort of direct line of ancestry, though not of blood, between Saladin and, and eventually of Tupac. Can you tell us about how Afeni, Tupac's mother, came to, you know, take on the last name Shakur? Yeah, everybody that took the name Shakur did so very intentionally. It wasn't. It wasn't done lightly. Uh, you know, it was. You were. You were. You were saying that you are part of this family, this very tight knit family, who is committed to um, Afrocentrism, to the liberation of Black people in America, um, to the movement, the Black liberation movement. Um, and so, Afeni is not related by blood to Saladin, but she did. Uh, she was looking for, and she was she was a, a you know her her early childhood was rough. She was just running around in the streets. She was a, a she joined a like a street gang, like, like a youth street gang, where she just ran around and just got in fights. So she was sort of looking for purpose and direction, and 
she discovered Bobby Seale, who was speaking in Harlem, uh, mm-hmm. and she saw his speech and was just, um, you know, just amazed by w- what he was saying. Uh, Bobby Seale's a co-founder of the Black Panther Party. And uh, she immediately, you know, did what she had to do to fi- figure out how to join the party. And uh, when she when she found her way to the Harlem office of the Black Panther Party, she met uh, Lumumba Shakur, who was James Costin's second son. Uh, and Lumumba Shakur is already a Black Panther. He was the founder of the Black Panther Party in Harlem. And Afeni saw him. And he was just this, you know, this righteous brother. He just like had everything together. He was just, he was articulate. He was intelligent. He was, you know, a leader in the party. Uh, and she just, you know, immediately took to, to him and to others in the party, other men in the party who just treated her with respect um, and were really impressed by, you know, what she brought to the table, which is just her, her dedication and her passion. So she, yeah, so she and Lamumba Shakur were married, informally married, Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and she took the name Shakur when she married Lumumba Shakur, and then she became a, mem- uh, a leader of the, the, the Panther Party, you know, in her own right. Yeah. I mean, I get the feeling reading this book that you're a little bit tired of the Black Panther story being mostly or even exclusively told as kind of an Oakland thing. For those who might be familiar with the local history here, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Merritt College, you know, David Hilliard, like the West Oakland. What do you want people to know about the differences between the party as it was established and kind of grew and then retrenched here and the kind of New York side of the story? Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up cuz yeah, the 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 Black Panther Party as you know, many people know them or have come to learn about them. It makes they 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 most people feel like the or just believe that the Panthers were based in just California, specifically Oakland. You know, that's where they were founded or at least that's where this particular um Black Panther Party cuz there was multiple Black Panther parties mm-hmm. operating. But the ones that got the most attention, the most media, were the one, the the party founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. But after they founded the party in Oakland, I mean, it spread. And you know, once once word got out about what was going on, you know, once they were in the media, once their you know the newspapers would show them with their black berets and their shotguns and you know uh, confronting police officers in Oakland, uh, word got out. So every you know m- most cities in the U.S. People wanted to sign up. People wanted to start their own chapters, and they did. You know, I mean, it spread uh, just cr- like crazy in the first two years. It spread all across the country. But you know, there's there's differences between people in uh, New York and the East Coast and the West Coast. You know, the Panthers, you know, there had their own needs. You know, people mm-hmm. in the in New York City had their own needs that they wanted to address that maybe didn't align with Panthers out on the West Coast, and so. Uh, the Panthers in Harlem specifically, which is where the Shakurs were uh, leaders, they they took a more Afrocentric approach, and they also took a little more militant approach. They they a lot of times wanted to strike first. They wanted to confront uh, police officers, uh, confront immediate needs rather than waiting, or rather than just. I mean, a lot of, a lot of a lot of things that would be that the Panthers in New York would be accused of um, in coming years after the founding were things that really shocked the Panthers, you know, back on the mm-hmm. West Coast. Uh, they just did not understand, you know, what they were doing out there. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and yeah, there's, so there's, there's a lot of major differences between the East Coast and West Coast, which we, you know, we would see later with East Coast and West Coast with, uh, you know, with Tupac. Yeah. You know, there's two other names we should mention briefly before we dive into the more into the family tree and some of the ideas inside this book after the break. And that's Matula Shakur and Asada Shakur. So for people who are trying to, like, piece together this family tree, like, where did they fit just briefly? Yeah, that's you know it's it's a complicated thing because not not every like I said not every Shakur is related by blood, um, but they took the name out of respect and out of a commitment to to joining the family and it really is more like a not a family that we think of uh, traditional families but it's a chosen a tribe. family in a sense yeah it's tribe, a fa- yeah. it's a chosen family yeah and so in Matulu uh, Shakur and Asada Shakur were not blood relatives, blood children of Saladin Shakur, but they respected the Shakur's family so much and they joined the tribe, joined the family by taking on that name for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, of course, if you were to just briefly say where it is that you think that people might know about them, I mean, Asada Shakur ends up being in uh, exile in Cuba after um, being convicted of a, of a murder and Matula... Shakur ends up also in prison, although recently released, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, Matulu was finally released after 35 years in prison, uh, released just um, last year. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with Santi Elijah Holly about his new book, American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. We'd love to hear from you. If you were involved with the Panthers or any black liberation movement, how have your thoughts about it changed over the years? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new book, American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created, with its author, Santi Elijah Holly. Um, before we return to the family, I want to talk about a couple of the uh, this kind of theme in the book and something that I think a lot of books about the Panthers and Black Liberation movements more generally kind of struggle to resolve. And I wanted to know how you ended up kind of thinking about this. You know, on the one hand, 
The FBI definitely went hard after many black radicals in the 60s and 70s, all kinds of tricks. A lot of it came out later in documents about COINTELPRO, as well as the kind of associated local police forces. And so many people say that the FBI and the police unfairly persecuted uh, a lot of the leaders in the, in the movement. On the other hand, your book also details a pretty wide variety of violence in the name of black liberation against people, including black people, many robberies and other associated crimes. And it is not clear to me that if you declare war on the United States with guns, doesn't the state kind of have to respond with police force? How did you end up kind of working through the relationship between kind of declaring war on the government and the FBI's behavior? Yeah, that's a good observation. And I, uh, it's something that when working in the book, I, you know, I didn't want to really take strong sides with, uh, with one side or the other. I, I really wanted just to present the facts, you know, as I learned them, the history. I mean, it's not, it's not a pretty history. And, and there's a lot of things that I think, you know, were done with good intentions or at least began with good intentions. And I think, uh, a lot of people who were involved, a lot of these activists and militants, they didn't know what they were really getting themselves into. Mm. They knew what they were up against, and that's you know that's something that they all knew. But I mean, they were they they were young. They were in their twenties when they you know really committed themselves to this. And you know, in the arms of the state is really it's long and it does not let go uh, once it once it sets its sight on you. And I think they. I think they got themselves backed into a bit of a corner towards the end, you know, mm-hmm. and they start starting off with a lot of idealism, uh, a lot of hope just for, I mean, you know, I don't think their violence was really a concern uh, for, for most of them. I think they really just wanted to, you know, promote and help and assist black people in the U.S. And, uh, and it's something that, you know, when you start asserting your rights and sort of taking your rights, you know, without permission from the state... Uh, there will be repercussions, and then it goes back and forth, and then they and then they act, you know, and then people sort of it escalates over time. And yeah, working in the book, there's things that I just did not want to shy away from. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to just just gloss it over or or pretend like it didn't happen. You know, I feel like a lot of the people, a lot of the people involved, uh, I have sympathy for, but I'm also just like, how did you, you know, let it get this far, mm-hmm. um, knowing what you're up against and. Yeah, I think it was. I think it ended up pretty tragic in in most cases. Yeah, I mean, the larger question, of course, is sort of when violence might be justified, or what kind of violence and against whom. And you know, I, it's it's interesting because I mean, I, I my dad gave me the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was ten years old, so I've been reading him and 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 thinking about Malcolm X for a really long time. But I kind of feel like the way that he has been screenshotted, you know, the kind of by any means necessary kind of means it kind of feels too simple and. But I I am curious, like having done this research and seen the way that these groups saw violence, what have you come to in terms of thinking about what that what that means for today? Well, you brought up a moment ago, you brought up COINTELPRO and COINTELPRO, the the counterintelligence program, which is the FBI's covert uh, program to disrupt and, and, and break apart and dismantle any sort of radical group. They, they, I mean, that, uh, you know, the FBI through COINTELPRO committed acts of violence against these mm-hmm. uh, many people, you know, a lot of, uh, with, with, with uh, in, informants, with, you know, setting up 
different organizations with undercover cops. Like there was a lot of violence perpetrated on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and they saw themselves as being at war. You know, whether or not it really was a war, they saw that's the way they saw themselves. And so they reacted as if they were, you know, at war and under attack. Um, and with Malcolm X, you know, he was sort of the he was the the patron saint to the movement and by any means necessary meant I think it gets sort of twisted sometimes. You know, people think of by any means necessary as being a call to arms when really, you know, Malcolm X was never issuing a call to arms. He was saying we have to do what we can, we have we have to do what we have to do, but usually that that could be just organizing our communities, you know, and and a lot of Panthers were just focusing on community programs, feeding children, um, providing health care to people who needed health care. That was also, you know, by any means necessary. I think some people just took it to the extreme, but that wasn't necessarily the, you know, what I think Malcolm X was saying. Uh, I think that they were just desperate at a certain point just to see any sort of, you know, any, any sort of uh, progress. And then when progress wasn't happening, they they took it to the next level. And as far as today, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to connect it to today because I don't think we have any um, comparable organizations or leaders or activists who are, who are, you could point to and say that they are carrying on this work. I mean, there are people today who are doing it quietly, you know, maybe in their own communities, uh, but not with the same sort of, like, I don't know, uh, fanfare or media coverage. Uh, they're just focusing on their communities. And I think that's what's happening today rather than, you know, these sort of big, like, uh, f- photo ops and things like that. And I think most mm. of these are just the quiet work that's done in people's community. Yeah. You know, I was really struck by the kind of 19... 19- 70s history that you give here because you know oftentimes again coming from the kind of like bay area perspective of the panthers the story is more of the black panthers sort of channeling what they were doing into electoral politics you know bobby seal runs for mayor elaine brown uh runs for the city council of course now elaine brown's developing nonprofit housing in west oakland so it's a very different kind of pathway in this book you're really covering the people who stayed more radical like can you talk to us a little bit about the black liberation army the Black Liberation Army. Yeah, that was uh, that was an organization, well, a loose organization um, uh, of of mostly, predominantly uh, disillusioned Black Panthers. So once the Black Panther Party in the seventies kind of started to unravel for various reasons, like uh, both COINTELPRO and just the megalomania of a lot of leaders and a lot of the the misogyny of a lot of uh, the leaders in the party. A lot of people, uh, they saw that the above ground work that they were doing, sort of the more the more visible work that they were doing, drew attention to themselves, and they decided to go underground. They decided that the work that needed to be done needed to be clandestine and uh, without any sort of leaders, without any sort of um, hierarchy. It was just a very just grassroots, just under like underground organization. Uh, and I use organization loosely. And they also decided that they needed to really, I mean, really go to war. I mean, Black Panther Party was, you know, organizing community things and community uh, support and community programs. Black Liberation Army, BLA, was committed to uh, bank robberies or expropriations, they would call it, um, 
targeting police officers uh, and then the and the expropriations of banks and armored cars were to fund uh, the revolution. I mean, they really believed that they were starting the revolution in you know in the seventies and 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 they they were going to be the ones that were going to lead it. And it was a very just loose uh, organization, groups of of cells around the country, um, and yeah, they were they were a very just militant. Uh, group of individuals, which was uh, Asada Shakur, you know, was the most visible, or most 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 well known uh, member of the of the Black Liberation Army. I think I also didn't quite realize just like the scale of what was happening. It might have been a loose confederation, but there were like many many bank uh, robberies in in the scheme of things. Right? I mean, we're talking like dozens across the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots. I mean, bank robberies, uh, sticking up drug dealers. That was the thing that they they also would do is that if there was a drug dealer in their neighborhood in their community, they would just rob them. Or uh, late night social clubs, they'd just you know burst through the doors with guns and 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 rob everybody in there because they 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 believed that they these these people these either the the drug dealers or these social clubs were doing damage to the community, harming the community by selling drugs or, you know, this and that. And so they would rob them, take the money back for the people, you know, put the money into revolution, into buying more weapons or buying land. You know, the ultimate goal was to buy land in the South to have, uh, you know, just as, as a place to, as, as, as their own land, you know, a place to retreat to, uh, to train and just to have, you know, a, just a home base. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it got, uh, you know, and that's the thing is what the intentions were, um, to clean up the community and to help people in the community. But the, I don't know, the, the irony is that they're then targeting people in the community. You know, they're, they're, they're terrorizing the community. Um, and I think there's that, that little bit of like, you know, the intentions are good, but I think it just sort of got a little carried away or it got very carried away in the end. Mm, yeah. mm. I mean... The other kind of fascinating history that almost feels like a parallel track, but that does intersect in these kind of fascinating ways is that there's this push for health care, particularly around drug addiction, which, you know, nowadays is something that we're talking about a lot. You know, what are what are the treatments that can uh, that can work for people aside from throwing people in jail? Um, Can you talk a little bit about the way that that ended up intersecting with this family? Yeah, that's great. Um, that's a great question because uh, one of the the more um, admirable, uh, or at least just the like, just one of the the, the most dedicated uh, member of the family. I mean, and, and everybody in this family, in the immediate family, was dedicated. But uh, there's an individual named Matulu Shakur um, who was friends of the family. He was also he was mentored by Saladin Shakur, mm-hmm. uh, and he. You know, he was hired by Lincoln Hospital uh, in 1970 to just be like a Lincoln Hospital and it was in the Bronx and they were um, and there was a group of Black Panthers and Young Lords, a Puerto Rican uh, liberation group who took over a part of Lincoln Hospital um, and to start a drug treatment uh, program. For, for for the community because mm-hmm. people were uh, you know heroin addiction was just just rampant in in the Bronx in that, in that time and so they they demanded uh, uh, holistic drug treatment and Matulu came on first as a counselor but then he later 
discovered acupuncture as a as a way of of helping people with their withdrawal sim- symptoms. Uh, and you know, he just and nobody was really doing it at the time. I mean, there wasn't really acupuncture right now. Obviously, is is widespread, but at the time, it was sort of novel. It was it wasn't really being done. Nobody really knew how to do it. So Matulu Shakur taught himself. Then he went. He studied. Uh, you know, first he and his collective members in Lincoln Hospital taught themselves uh, acupuncture, and then they wanted to learn more about it. So they studied formally, got their doctorates and and everything, and got certified, and then really promoted, really just just used acupuncture and political education to show people, you know, that there's another way to do this. And, you know, that's sort of part of the what they believed. I mean, healthcare was part of, you know, the movement itself. I mean, that was part of the work that they really were dedicated to and really passionate about was treating the community, not waiting for, you know, like permission, not waiting for to go through all the form, jump through all the hoops and everything, but they just saw an immediate need in their community, and somebody like Matulu Shakur saw what needed to be done, and he said, I'm going to do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn it, and I'm going to teach others how to do it, and he started a school, he started an acupuncture school and a clinic, um, because that's what he saw what needed to be done, and I think that is sort of says a lot about what this family is about. I mean, they just saw what needs to be done, and they do it, and if they make mistakes along the way, then so be it. You know, there's a really interesting parallel in Marin City where Tupac Shakur eventually ends up. There were former Panthers there who actually took up mental health services, like a kind of hotline. Um, this woman named Dorethea Duvall who got really involved up there. And you could see, because we're, as we're kind of working our way through the 1970s, a lot of the more radical efforts are falling out. People are in jail. People are dead. People in, in exile. So people are kind of taking up these other um, the, these other ways of sort of helping um, the community. And I wondered if maybe you could sort of move us forward in the timeline with Afeni and Tupac. Like, where does he enter into the Shakur uh, story? And where does if how do they end up over here in Northern California? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, Tupac, he, you know, working on the book, I mean, I knew this sort of going into the book, but the more I worked on this book and learned about Tupac's upbringing uh, and and the, the 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 family that he was surrounded by. I mean, he was he was a child of the movement. I mean, he was born. You know, Afeni was already very involved as a Black Panther. She's already already respected as a, a Black Panther leader, um, organizer, and she raised Tupac to be to carry on that mantle. You know, to 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 carry on the that the movement to pick up where they left off. The Black Prince of the Revolution, right? Yeah, she mm-hmm. called she called him the Black Prince of the Revolution. And that's how she raised him. And she, you know, it was a lot of pressure on him to, to, to live up to that, obviously. And, and everybody that surrounded the family were movement veterans, you know, or survivors, people who had been through all this and then survived everything. And now Tupac is being raised to, to as a new generation, you know, so that's, you know, he was raised with the knowledge of what happened to the Panthers and what happened to Fred Hampton, what happened to his family. Uh, and that was what he was being sort of... Uh, raised to do with his with his with his life you know and he even early in his career that that's sort of if you listen to his early music especially not not just his first album but even before then you know he's talking about deep stuff uh which not a lot of rappers or i don't think any rappers are really talking about you know panther history and black liberation history and he is you know because he that was who he was and that's how he was raised and that's how his mother raised him you know uh 
you know, we can talk later on about <laughs> how that sort of he got a little diverted from his message. But um, initially, that's how he was uh, raised. And then when he moved from I mean, the, the, he and his mother and his sister, Setua, moved from New York to Baltimore and then from Baltimore to Marin City. And even in Marin City, even when he's out, you know, in the Bay, he was still on that. He was still thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to, you know, further this cause? You know, he wanted to start the new, a new Black Panther Party. He became chairman of the New African Panthers, which which was a, a youth organization that was sort of focused on, you know, Black liberation. And uh, he became the chairman of that. And so he was almost, you know, there was, he was at a crossroads where he was going to go either you know, lead the new African Panthers and, and carry on this mantle as he was being raised mm-hmm. to do, or be a rapper and entertainer. And he wanted to find a way to do both. But, you know, as as he learned, it's, it's it's you know, it's harder. Once you sort of get into the industry itself, it's, it's hard to... It's hard. <laughs> harder to keep your, it going. It's hard, yeah. Yeah, it's harder to hold on to your ideals. You know, your really strong uh, ideals once you've, once people are throwing money at you and, you're, you, know, you know, you're in movies and people are throwing themselves at you. And, yeah, he... he he just, he got a little, uh, he went a little wayward. Yeah. You know, was Tupac your real, your entry point for this book? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I've, I've been a Tupac fan for, you know, as long as I can remember. Uh, and, but not until recent years, really. I mean, I, I've always listened to his music, but um, I think in the last few years, I really started listening more deeply to his lyrics or sort of revisiting his his interviews and his words and I was like, what, what's going on here? Hold on a sec. You know, like, and then, you know, I was, you know, as, as a writer and as a journalist myself, and I was covering mm-hmm. a lot of social justice and racial justice issues. And, you know, I started looking back at Tupac and being like, oh, he was talking about this back in the 90s. Um, right. And I was, so I, the more I looked into his family history, I was like, oh, this, this is really deep. I got to really, really mm-hmm. explore this more, more thoroughly. We're talking with Santi Elijah Holly about his book, American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation they created. Again, we'd love to hear uh, from you. We're going to have some comments and calls after the break. If you were involved with the Panthers or any Black Liberation Movement, how have your thoughts about it changed over the years? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Santi Elijah Holly about his book, American Family, the Shakurs and the Nation They Created. 
I want to spend this part of the show talking a little bit about Tupac, um, who was your entry point, Santi. And you know, we've gotten a couple of comments uh, about Tupac. Um, Ashley writes in to say, I started listening to Tupac in fourth grade in Colorado back in the 90s. Needless to say, my mother was less than pleased when a Tupac poster covered a Backstreet Boys poster. I think all the time about how listening to Tupac helped shape me into who I am and inform me about the struggle for liberation in this country in a way that my education did not. I didn't always understand then, but it set me up for my political beliefs now. I'm constantly shocked how other white people I know who also listened to Tupac as a child still refuse to understand racism, and in particular the problem with the police. Seth writes in to say... I failed to understand the rationale for the lionizing of Tupac Shakur. He repeatedly committed acts of violence, including sexual assault, and resulting in the shooting death of a child. His victims were African-American. We have many other genuine heroes who deserve our love and respect and who choose to serve our community with determination and love. They're willing to go to prison to defend their ideals and uphold civil rights rather than as a result of their violent misogyny and narcissism. And I do feel like, Santine, in these are two ideas that are in our culture and in people's minds about Tupac. And how did you, I mean, this book kind of feels to me like an attempt to kind of resolve this in an ancestral way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, those are two really good uh, comments because Tupac was, I mean, he was all those things, you know, like he was, he was, he was very contradictory as a person. He was very he self-contradictory, and he was he he faced a lot of his own demons and trauma. Uh, and you know, I don't want to apologize for some of his his worst behavior, but uh, I will say that he was a very you know. The more I learn about him as an adult, he was a very uh, really just. Uh, yeah, contradictory and troubled person who was trying to reconcile these two sides of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, this person who wants to be an entertainer and wants to be a sex symbol and wants to make money and also wanting to have a good message and, and uplift, you know, his people and, and and be a good example and a good, you know, a spokesperson for the movement. But, and that's where he started, you know, but he would always just go back and forth because that he was just, he had these two sides in him that were, you know, battling or... You know, sometimes he would have one side and then he'd have to like reverse himself and, and try to make up for what he did. But yeah, he's not he's not a perfect person. He he had his faults. And, uh, you know, in the book, I wanted to show at least what where he was coming from and what he was facing, you know, as, as a person who was really dealing with a lot in his family. And sometimes he's also just a young man in his early 20s. And he was suddenly famous after living in poverty for his whole life. Uh, you know, now he's suddenly, um, you know, famous sex symbol, movie star, and wanting to try to get back to his his ideals, but not really having any strong, any people, any 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 people around him that were that were, you know, giving him good advice. I mean, he had some people who were trying to 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 help him stay on his on his path, but he would just wild out sometimes and just yeah. he just wanted to have fun because he was a young man and he just, you know, he was he was living. At that point in life, he was living in the public eye, and so every mistake he made, every time he acted out, you know, it was reported in every newspaper, every magazine, every you know, everywhere. So he he wasn't really afforded a, an opportunity to sort of find himself and figure out what he was trying to do. It just sort of happened for him, and he's trying to do it all in the public eye. Where was his mother in all this, Fanny uh, uh, Shakur? She, uh, you know, she struggled with drug addiction uh, after the fallout with the Black Panthers and after she left the party. 
she had a, she struggled to find her way, and she didn't really have a lot of support. Um, and she was raising two kids, Tupac and and uh, his sister Sechua, and uh, you know she did, she was just struggling to to make a living and to provide for her kids. And so she and she eventually became addicted to drugs and um, kind of wasn't really present for a lot of a lot of the the I'd say mid eighties to early nineties until she got clean. Um, and so she wasn't really there. I mean, Tupac was, uh, you know, homeless for, for a good portion of his, his late teens, uh, couch surfing on friends' couches or family friends. Uh, and that was, you know, that was after he came out here to, to the Bay area. He was, yeah, he was homeless. He was hungry and he was just trying to, trying to, trying to feed himself and keep, you know, have a, somewhere to sleep. And so, not until his career kind of started to take off uh, did Afeni finally uh, go to go to rehab, you know, kick drugs, mm-hmm. and then come back into his life and you know be a mother again. But that you know there's a long there's a big portion where he was sort of just on his own. Mm. You know, um, one listener wants to talk about sort of the international nature of the Black Panthers and, and you know, Tupac also had this kind of uh, resonance outside of the country as well. One, the listener writes, I was a young person in Beirut, Lebanon, when I picked up a used book about the Panthers from a store in 1987. I learned about their history and became interested in the community awareness and solidarity that they fomented. Later on, when I came to grad school at Cornell University, the Cornell Cinema showed a series of documentaries about the Panthers and one about Tupac, where his mom mentions that his middle name is Amaru, after the revolutionary Tupac Amaru of Latin America. To fast forward in 2017, I took my two daughters, 10 and 12 at the time, to see the Oakland Museum, uh, to the Oakland Museum to see the 50th anniversary exhibition about the Panthers and took photos in the wicker chair. You know, given the contradictions that we've noted here and given the difficulties of the the lives of the people involved, both as a result of their own actions as well as, uh, as other things, like, what do you think has enabled this family, the Shakurs, in many, in totally different ways to capture sort of the global, I, I don't want to call it fame because I feel like that that is maybe both uh, minimizes and lionizes, mm-hmm. but captures a, the attention of the world in a way that like very few people have been able to do. Yeah, I mean, there's something sort of uh, like legendary about them, um, but it's also sort of this this myth that, that's been built among, or, or almost like, yeah, this, this mythology of who the Shakurs are. I think people... Um, you know, I, I I consider them uh, the first family of Black liberation uh, because they're they are perceived as being almost royalty. Even people today who are sort of in the movement, uh, continue, you know, today um, think of think of the name Shakur as this this great honor. You know, to take the name Shakur is an honor and a privilege, and it doesn't come lightly even today. And uh, and I think that's because we like to have heroes. You know, like we like to have. You know, we don't have a lot of heroes, um, especially uh, um, like a in the movement, a, a family who is hmm. who has really just put themselves to the forefront and seemingly, you know, sacrificed so much, um, and had also such a, a superstar, you know, in Tupac. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, really influential, really monumental movement people uh, and Black Panther leaders. But, you know, they don't have that same sort of just star status. And I think, you know, even going back to Afeni, 
in the '60s when she was a Black Panther, she was you know she had a she was a star then. I mean, she was a celebrity within the movement and within New York City because she was so dynamic of a speaker. And I think you know Tupac picked up on that, like got that from her. But then you know, the other Shakurs, Matulu Shakur, you know, was was a brilliant you know uh, thinker and you know pioneer in acupuncture. And Asada was a brilliant thinker and writer. And it's just like you know you look at all these Shakurs and you're just like wow. I mean, this is you know in a time where we really are looking for people to be to be heroes and to be righteous and everything. I mean, even though they're they're all flawed, you know, they're all human. There's something that's just that's inspirational about just their their commitment and just their their intelligence that we really I think still, you know, take inspiration from. Yeah. Let's bring in uh John Tuvo in South San Francisco. Welcome. Yeah, hi. Thanks a lot for the show. Yeah, I had some questions for the guest. Um, you know, uh the Panthers were not only involved like in um racial nationalism, but were they also involved in class politics. They were influenced a lot by Mao, uh, and they were also successful in organizing white and black workers, especially in Chicago. And that was one of the reasons why they were successful, some of the positive things that they did, and also one of the reasons why they got put down because of their success organizing, you know, Latino and white workers. Yeah. Hey, John, thanks for uh, that uh, that point and that, that question. Um, yeah, I mean, talk to me a little bit about that, because it does feel like um, both the Panthers themselves changed on some of these points over time and geographically disparate Panther units might have had also different approaches to what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, the um, the early on, like the early sort of class issues and, and the sort of studying of Mao and, and Marxist thought, um, that's something that really Huey P. Newton was very much... Mm-hmm spearheading and that's that's what he was sort of you know that's what he was really committed to um class issues and yeah and also you're right john like forming sort of alliances between white and black leftists and revolutionaries and that's something though that really uh got a little bit lost uh in other chapters you know that that huey newton wasn't part of it, it, it the 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 class um the class ideas and sort of the the idea of of different politics and different um, social structures, that's something that not everybody could really get behind. Not everybody was as 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 academic and scholarly as Huey Newton, mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't really understand you know this the things that he was talking about. They just knew you know they wanted to address the needs of their community. At least in in certain chapters like New York, um, there was le- a little bit less talk about class um but yeah i mean early on that was part of it but i think you know with any sort of large organization that doesn't really have a strong um uh you know like i guess commitment like unity uh, a lot of people sort of took it in their own directions and i think that's what happened with the, the the panthers in new york yeah and you know i think where huey newton kind of ended up on a lot of those things i mean one of the the toughest things about Huey Newton is as he's descending into kind of drug adulment he also comes up with this theory of intercommunalism which is really a, a at least to my mind very prescient view of globalization at a time when like people weren't really talking about that so it's it's always been one of the difficult things about the the panthers i think there there were so many things where they were kind of ahead of their time and there were other components to what was what was happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I you know, um I wanted to ask you this. I mean, thinking about the legacy of this family on an ideas level, 
um, not sort of an icon level. I mean, what do you think is the most important thing that they've sort of passed down to their descendants in the movement? Just like, I mean, really just uh, a couple of things. Maybe, I mean, the, the dedication, the passion for the community, the love for the community, everything that you do in the struggle has to be done from, uh, you know, a deep and abiding love, you know, for the people. That's, a, you know, that's on the positive side. On the negative side, it's, you know, it's it's a hard, you know, it's a hard fight and there's going to be sacrifices and there's going to be loss and those losses uh, and, and, and uh, that those tragedies will be passed on to, you know, your children. And like a lot of the children of these veteran movement, you know, people and these elders, they are facing trauma today. You know, they're still, they're living through the trauma of having uh, doors kicked in by, you know, police or feds or, you know, their family members sort of on the run and having to go underground and not really having a family or not having parents because they're, you know, either in prison or they're dead or they're underground. So, I mean, it is really, you know, I don't want, I didn't want this book to be just like a, a, you know, glorification of what everybody did and how great things are because of what they did. It's also, it's a warning. It's saying, look, these are, these are, these are the risks that you take. And if you're willing to really just uh, risk your, not only your life, but the lives of your children who are going to be dealing with the fallout from all this, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what you have to really take into consideration. Yeah. Um, we have a listener, uh, Scott, who writes and say, I'm ashamed to say that I'm just learning about the changes that the Panthers were trying to make in the 10-point program. What's an entry point for more ideas uh, for this for people who aren't uh, as informed? Just uh, two quick things. Uh, this book is a, a great introduction to the sort of milieu of the, the Panthers. I also think there's another um, great book that could be read in parallel called Black Against Empire, oh, yeah, which... I was, was going to recommend that one. I... Yeah. I, 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 I that is a, it's a very fair book in the Black Panther Party. It's very, it's very, very detailed. Um, yeah. And I, and I know one of the authors, there's two authors, Joshua Bloom and somebody else. Um, and I'm sorry for not remembering the other author's name, but the, the name of the book is Black Against Empire. And it's a great, complete history of the Black Panther Party, you know, warts and all. And, yep. uh, Particularly in its heroic phase, you know, as it's kind of growing um, before a lot of other things. Yeah, there's, there's another book called Up Against the Wall. Uh, by um, Curtis Austin, I want to say. Um, that's a good one, too, looking at just sort of how the, the rhetoric around violence in the Black Panther Party um, sort of was their undoing because people would join the party. Some people would join the party just because they were attracted to that. Not not all, obviously, but yeah. Yeah. enough that would, you know, would prove really disastrous. Well, we have been talking with Santi Elijah Holly about his new book, American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. Thank you so much for joining this morning, Santi. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. We wanted to do a little special thing here. Tina Turner passed on yesterday at the age of 83. Angela Bassett, who played Tina Turner in the movie based on Turner's life, wrote a really beautiful tribute. How do we say farewell to a woman who owned her pain and trauma and used it as a means to help change the world, Bassett asked? Through her courage in telling her story, her commitment to stay the course in her life no matter the sacrifice, and her determination to carve out a space in rock and roll for herself and for others who look like her, Tina Turner showed others who lived in fear what a beautiful future filled with love, compassion, and freedom should look like. We're going out with Tina Turner singing Proud Mary from her solo era. Here she is in a live performance in the Netherlands in 2009.
I'm Alexis Madrigal. Enjoy the song and stay tuned for another hour form ahead with guest host Grace Wan. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.